Welcome to the Bitcoin Breakout, a production of the Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spierko. Remember, you can always find all our episodes at thebitcoinbreakout.com. You can also find all episodes of the Survival Podcast at tspc.co. If you want full personal sovereignty, Bitcoin is only one step. On the Survival Podcast, we discuss all aspects of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and personal liberty. Now strap in and get ready for another episode of the Bitcoin Breakout, where we discuss how Bitcoin and the Lightning Network will literally change everything. Fix the money, fix the world. And we are live. Welcome to episode two of the Bitcoin Breakout, a production of the Survival Podcast. I guess that's what we're going to call it uh, as we build this together. Uh, again, for those that are tuning in maybe for the first time to anything I've done, Bitcoin Breakout is going to be a production of my main podcast, which is the Survival Podcast, and it will also be its own thing. This week, uh, where if you're watching it live or right, you know, within a week or two after it's recorded, it's, uh, it's just having the foundation laid. I wanted four episodes as fundamentals for people. Those are the one we did yesterday, which is What is Money? Today we're doing What is Bitcoin? Just a simple what is. Uh, the next episode will be basically just how you buy and hold Bitcoin in the most simple ways possible without holding on an exchange and why that's bad. And then the fourth episode in the fundamental series will be uh, a basic overview and understanding of the Lightning Network. And that will be the fundamental series beginning. And then as we build this forward, I'll probably have about four more that will get tagged and put into that series so that as new people come in, as we're you know a year into this or more, and there's 50 or 60 episodes of this, uh, that people that are just like, I really don't understand any of this, and I want to be able to understand this, will be able to say, here's the fundamental series in a playlist or tagged on the website, which will be isn't yet, but will be the BitcoinBreakout.com. If you go there right now, you just see my uh, web guy, Tom, playing around with the WordPress theme and figuring out what it's going to look like for me. We're working on the logo. I was going to show you that today, but now I'm not. If you follow me on Twitter, you already saw it. If you want to follow me on Twitter, um, you can do that. I am the Survival Pod C on Twitter. So again, let's let's talk about Bitcoin from a standpoint of what is Bitcoin and why I wanted to do this episode uh, at this most basic of all levels. It's occurred to me in many places over the years, not just in cryptocurrency, that I, I hear people often say, I've done my research. I've listened to my experts. And then you ask them the most fundamental question about the area that they're speaking, and, and, and they don't have any idea how to answer the basic fundamental question of what is this thing or how does this thing work? And I've seen that in Bitcoin, too. I really have. I've seen that in Bitcoin, and I've seen it on both sides of the coin. If you want, I mean, pun not intended, but let's go ahead and have the pun, right? Both sides of the Bitcoin. I've seen people who are incredibly negative about Bitcoin. It's going to go to zero. It's a scam. It's a Ponzi. And I did my research. And you say, well, what is Bitcoin? And they don't know. Uh, conversely, though, I've seen especially people, the people that call themselves the plebs that act like the original gangster Bitcoiners. They've been around for like three days or something and uh they uh but they weren't here for any of the shit that we went through to get where we are and and they talk all kinds of smack but even some long-term uh people in the in the space maybe they haven't dug deep into the technology but they've they've bought held and spent bitcoin for a long time when you say what is bitcoin both sides of that coin they don't they don't really have an answer and a lot of it is because of the media 
And I wanted, if you're going to follow this podcast and you're going to spread the good news that is Bitcoin, I wanted you to be able to answer the question and explain the answer. So there's one thing if you can answer the question, but can you explain the answer? So we're going to do that today. And we're going to start off with the most basic answer, which is it is a peer-to-peer payment system with no need to trust a third party. That's what it is. That's, that is actually a great answer. It doesn't really explain the deeper side of the technology, which we'll get into in just a bit, but it's what it is. All that it means is, uh, Hunter is, is on with us today. And if I wanted to buy something from Hunter that I can send him money and we talked about what money was yesterday. So we won't rehash another pun, right? We won't rehash that today. And I can send it to him and he can receive it and he can say, I have extreme confidence that Jack paid me and therefore I'm going to give Jack his stuff and that we don't need a bank or a credit card processor that with our simple hardware on our own computers or our phones on a mobile device, we can conduct that transaction and we can say, hey, done deal. That's what it is. That's the most basic thing that it is. And when you when you start there, there's a lot of people that when you start addressing things that we'll get to when we get to the episode on the Lightning Network, like, but how many transactions can it do in a minute? How many transactions can it do in a day? How long does it take a transaction to clear? In other words, when I send the money to Hunter, how long is it before he's like, yep, I got Jack's money? And it's about 10 minutes, depending on when and the speed of the network and did a block just start or one finish or are we in the middle of a block or where are we at? Um, but that's, that's actually not slow. It's not slow. If you understand how most payments are made on, let's say, Visa or MasterCard and through bank systems, they actually take about three days for final settlement. You have confirmation that I'm good for the money that I put on my debit card or my credit card. You know I can leave with the stuff, but you don't actually have the money. That's not how that works. I don't think most people realize that. But it is slow in that if I'm going into a a, a coffee shop and I'm going to buy the cook, how do you pay for a coffee and a scone with Bitcoin? Um, we can use Lightning for that. And there's a variety of Lightning means that we can use from that. We can use it peer-to-peer. I can run my own node, but we can also have a third party. And I think the idea that we can't have Bitcoin be Bitcoin if a third party gets involved, is, well, it's it's positively asinine. What we can't do is get into a position where it's a requirement. It's a requirement. And so as long as we can conduct business, me to you and nobody else involved, we're good. But let's think about how that works with mining. Is Our miners not a third party? And the answer is they are, but they're also trustless. We don't need to trust them. I don't need to trust if Aaron Hunter, uh, Juniper Lane, and Crazy Pollock are all mining. I don't need to trust any one of them individually to trust that the transactions that they are mining and IE verifying are actually valid when 51% of the network says, yep, we're ready to put that next block in the chain. I don't have to trust them. So when we say it's trustless, we're not saying it's no third party. Those are two different things. And every single person out there, if you're not running your own node, 
linked to your own wallet on a full node wallet on any cryptocurrency, you have a third party involved. How much you need to trust them? Well, that depends on what you're doing. And we're not going to get deep into that today. But, you know, when I, when I hear scuttlebutt against Bitcoin from, well, you know, if you're using lightning, you're using a third party. And that means it's, well, do I have to trust them? Do I have to trust them? Because if you're sitting there with your Bitcoin cash wallet and it's not connected to your own node and you're not running a full node and you're not verifying your own transactions and you're using Exodus, which is a great wallet, by the way, or Coinami or Jax or pick your wallet, you're using their node. And on some level, you are extending them some trust. But since you hold your own keys, it's still trustless. How does all this work? Well, let's start off with the biggest reason that people give the wrong answer because they've been told the wrong answer over and 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 over by a thing that people that in general, people that that like Bitcoin say they don't really trust, but they trust it for this. The TV set. How many of you heard this? Right. So if you've heard this before, let me know in the in the chat on the live stream. Bitcoin mining is when really powerful computers solve incredibly complex math- mathematical problems and compete with each other to solve those mathematical problems the fastest. How many of you have ever heard that? Probably all of you. How many of you believe that? And, and if you, if you say no, but you only, you only are saying no because either you listened to me say a few things yesterday or because of the way I'm saying it now, Still say you believed it. At least you believed it up till this moment or you believed it up until yesterday, right? You believe that, right? You've heard it and you believe it. It makes sense. It sounds like you have this really badass thing called an ASIC, right? Which just means it's an application specific, application specific integrated circuit, right? But it's applic, it means that box that people use to mine Bitcoin right now, it serves one purpose to mine Bitcoin or some cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. Some also ran a Bitcoin. But it's not doing math. It's not doing math. There's math in the process, sort of, but it's not doing math. Let's imagine that um, Hunter decides he's going to hack into James's. I'm just picking names out of the chat here, right? Hunter's going to hack James's computer. And so, or onto James's network. So Hunter writes a program, and that program, you know, gets James's. ID, James R156 or whatever, right? That's the public side, the public key of Bitcoin. And then all this program does is just start throwing letter and number combinations at it as fast as it can. And it keeps waiting to get bing and log in. Is that math? That's not math. There's nothing about it that's math. There might be math in the circuitry as to how it functions, but it's not a math problem. That's what we call a brute force attack on on privacy, right? I'm going to try to get into a place I don't belong by brute forcing my way in. It's not math. This is exactly, this is what Bitcoin mining is. And I'm going to bring up some stuff here on the screen. I don't want to do too much with it because I, I don't want the people that will get this later in the audio only to be completely uh, left out. But I, I just want to show this to you guys, and I'm going to make sure my screen looks good here. Yeah, it does. All right, this is SHA-256. Many of you have heard, you know, use a SHA-256 encryption. Well, what is that? 
Well, right now, if you look at the bottom where it says hash, you're looking at the output in SHA-256 for nothing. For absolutely nothing. It actually has an output for nothing. Now watch, I'm going to put in my name, Jack. You see that it changed. And it changes every time I change a letter. At J, we've got, you know, it begins with a 1, it ends with a 7. And it's a very long string of numbers and letters. It's alphanumeric. When I put in A, now it starts with a 3 and ends with a with a 0. When I put in a C, it starts with a 4 and ends with a 4. K starts with a 3 and ends with a C. And if I could just start typing random crap in here, you can see that every single thing I do changes it. Even adding spaces changes it. All right, now what makes this not math is that there is no way to take this string at the bottom where it says F8A at the beginning now and ends in DOF and stick it into a thing and make it go back to this garbledygook that I just put in here, right? So hopefully everybody gets that, right, and understands that, that we are in a one-way process, which is what makes it not math. So if we were doing math, and I said 2 plus 5 equals 7, just a random problem, and you start with 7, and you have either 2 or 5, you can get back to where we started. So I can say um, x plus 5 equals 7, and without even doing the work that they used to make you do in school, you can say 2. You can go backwards. Or you can say there's a certain number of ways to get to 7, and 2 plus 5 is one of those ways. You can do some pretty complex algebra for something that simple to show the range of integers that can reach the conclusion of 7. But you get it goes both directions. Every addition problem is a subtraction problem in reverse and vice versa, division and multiplication. That's math. There is no way to take a Shaw representation and go back the other way through any sort of a process. Now, it's always that this is the thing. It's always the same. It's not some sort of rotating cryptography. If you go put, if you find any Shaw 256 hasher, and you go put Jack in it, you'll get the same string of integers I did. So you could theoretically build a database and say, we know that this represents that in SHA. Not necessary for Bitcoin. It won't help you as a Bitcoin miner. I'm about to explain to you why. So this is a, a website that I want you guys to know about. And if you want to get deeper into the exact mechanics of how, okay, you can go to this website and I'll show you before I finish up here, there's a, a page on it with a video, two videos actually. One's like 18 minutes and one's like nine minutes. And he goes through all these different options here at the top and shows you starting out where I just did how Shaw works. This goes in, this comes out. And again, it can't go backwards. Understand that. It would be like taking a banana, half of an orange and four strawberries and some cream and some ice and sticking it in a blender and blending it up. And then taking it to somebody and said, turn it back into what it was. You can't ever make it those individual parts again. So that's how that works. This, though, is what's going on on the most simplistic level when you're mining. So these are all, this is like a brand new, what we call Genesis block in a blockchain here at block number one. 
and then block number two, and you'll see that block number one has all zeros for the previous hash, and it has this hash down here. This was the winning answer. This is the lottery ticket. Am I not showing this to you guys? I didn't. I'm sorry. Hold on. Let me get that up there. Uh, window, Brave tab. Okay, share. I'm sorry, guys. Um, so now, now maybe this will make sense. Block one, your previous winning answer is nothing because it's the Genesis block. It's the first block. And here is the winning hash the, at the bottom. There was an answer. This is the answer you were looking for. And you got that answer by your computer just trying and trying and trying. But you look now, what we have is your block number, something called a nonce. Then you have your transactions, right? And in an actual blockchain, we don't have people's names here, but to make this easier for you to understand, we put in names. Darcy sent money to Bingsley, right? Elizabeth to Jane, Wicker to Lydia, etc. And then there's an amount here. And so what you do to get the right answer with this nonce is this number up here where the nonce is, this is what you're guessing out with your computer. And if I click mine, it'll actually go through and simulate mine here. It's actually not even simulated. This little program is actually doing it for real. And you see all the blocks turned red. There's a problem. There's a there's an error. And until it finds the right answer, which hopefully it'll do soon so I don't get held up too long here, um, everything is is broken. Now, the reason this can't happen on the actual blockchain with Bitcoin is that once this block has been certified by all the other miners, we're good to go. It's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna reload this page so that I can continue with this because it's I, I don't want to rehash again with a pun. I don't want to rehash what uh what the guy did. But every one of those options. So we're being I, I've got some kind of a browser issue here. Every option in here changes the hash that you're looking for down here, the, the answer here. And so there's no way, and you can see everything went back to green when it found the answer, right? So if I go in now here and I change from Parker to Dallas, and he sent $6.15, if I just change it to $6.14, I break everything going forward. Because if you'll notice, the hash at the bottom changes. Put it back where it was, it goes back to where it belongs. So when I first learned about this, and, and hopefully I won't have to do this anymore. When I first learned about this, I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So how's the difficulty adjustment work? So there's a point where maybe it's too easy. All the computers, there's so many computers on the network now that the miners are getting the, the right answer too fast. And we want to make the blocks take about 10 minutes per block. Well, the way they control that is that number at the bottom that hash number you're trying to match up, you're never going to match it exactly. It's not an exact match. What you're trying to do as a miner is put in something that puts out your hash to be a number that's equal to or lower than the one that needs to be solved for. Okay, You have to be lower than that number. So the more zeros at the beginning of that number, the more difficult that becomes Because the lower it is, the harder it is to hit. And the higher the number is, the, 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 more, the mo more possibilities there are in all these possibilities that you'll hit something lower than it. I hope that makes sense. It's a little counterintuitive. 
Because when I first heard that, I'm like, well, why don't we just you 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 just make a database that all of these times that we've hit before made a lower number, but the variable comes in in the transaction information itself. You always have different people sending different amounts of money to different other people in different directions, and every single variable in there, every single variable in there, changes the potential output stream. And the, the only thing that really is a constant in this is, the, is, is by the computer program itself, the blockchain code itself, once every two weeks takes a look at it and says, okay, so the miners were all solving uh, the problem in uh, uh, about nine minutes and a half. Well, I'm going to make it a little bit harder. Or, you know, but like when the China ban happened and all that, all those mining equipment came offline. And then all of a sudden the network slows down a little bit. and It's taking all those computers worrying and worrying and worrying 11 minutes to solve the problem. So the algorithm just goes, well, I'm going to make it a little easier for a while. And every two weeks, it stops and says, hey, where are we at? Are, are we hitting our 10-minute bogey or not? And that is the one of the most important parts of Bitcoin, that difficulty adjustment. This is where people say, well, what's going to happen if, if we have another country ban Bitcoin and all those computers come offline? Nothing really happens. Nothing really happens. The, the difficulty adjusts up and down. And much like the price, if you look at it narrowed down into an area, you can say, here's where the difficulty dropped. Look at it dropping. There's less hash power on the network. And then you say, here's where it spiked. There's more hash power on the network. But the overall movement, it goes up forever. Because as more and more people want to get into mining, more and more computers come online, more and more powerful computers are developed. Right. And this is when people say, well, what if what if they develop the next super duper quadruple ASIC and it's it's a hundred times faster than the network difficulty just goes up. And in reality, in our immediate future, we're so far from being able to get past what can be done right or what the difficulty that can be created right now. It's not worth worrying about. And you could literally have a change become as simple as. We'll go from SHA-256 to SHA-512 if we ever get to a point where the computers are too fast. And that can always be done through consensus. So let's go back to where we started. What, what were we trying to do as a society when Satoshi, whoever he, she, they were, and I'm just going to call him he from now, now forward, what, did, what was Satoshi trying to do along with other people that collaborated on the original product? They were trying to create a peer-to-peer -peer payment system with no need for a trusted third party, but not necessarily excluding you choosing to use one. If we transact in gold, there's no need for a trusted third party. But is there a need? Do you have the means? If I give you a piece of gold, are you going to stick it in your mouth and bite it, and that's going to tell you by how hard it is, what carrot it is, and you have your own little scale? Do you have your, your own little way of testing the gold? No, see, even gold required a third party. Somebody that would stamp that gold into a coin and then put their mint mark on it, right? So in a way, minting might actually be a better way to describe mining. But because of the energy uses thing and wanting to be clear, Satoshi and his cohorts thought mining made a lot more sense. You're expending energy to get the thing to function and to work. 
And I would love it if any of you guys that I'm, if I'm losing you on anything here, because I want this to be as basic as I can. And I, I feel like I'm already going higher than I should be for this. Tell me your questions in all caps in the chat. And that might help me do a better job for people. But that difficulty adjustment is one of the most critical components because what it allows for is you can have a thousand new miners come online tomorrow or a thousand new miners come on in the next couple of weeks or 10,000 and it might speed up production for just a little bit and then the algorithm is going to pull it back down and this is all automatic. Nobody makes this decision. This is hard coded into the core and this is why. This is why it is so superior to gold. I want you to imagine that Peter Schiff is right to a degree. And he's not all wrong, by the way. He's all wrong about Bitcoin, but he's not all wrong about gold. So, but let's say that some crazy shit happens in the economy, because like that never happens. And that tomorrow morning, gold starts a parabolic increase. And 90 days from today, gold is $8,000 an ounce. Do you think the gold mining companies might invest in some new mining equipment or mining technology? Do you think maybe, you know, the gold miners that are mining one specific uh, resource right now, but they have access to other lands, might say, hey, it's time to start opening up some more mines? You might think they might work a little longer, dig a little deeper, etc. And so if you have more gold mining, you get more gold output. Even if we have a finite amount of gold, we get more gold output for a time. I hope that makes sense. So if gold is inflating at a rate of about 2.5% per annum and gold goes up really high in price and the miners dig more, maybe our inflation rate becomes 4% or 5%. Some new technology is developed. It's even better at extracting it, right? So more mining, more gold for a time, period. More miners mining Bitcoin, nothing happens. We know exactly to the day when the last Bitcoin will be mined. This always brings up the question. This always brings up the question. So what happens when the last Bitcoin's mined? So first of all, we'll all be dead. And that's okay. Because it's multi-generational wealth we're building here, folks. But we don't have to solve that problem. But the, but the answer, as we already know, it, it's transaction fees. So miners earn, earn money in Bitcoin in two ways. One is there's a block reward. So if my computer, or my more likely my pool of computers that I, I play with, I, I go in in league with this pool, which just means a bunch of computers all working together, combining their hash power, and that way you're more likely to find a block. And we find a block. Right now, I get something like 6.25 or something like that. 6.2 something Bitcoin. And that's split amongst the whole pool based on how much I contributed. Make it really simple. This is too simple, but it would make it easy to understand. If there was 10 computers that were all equal in hash power and I owned one of them, I'd get 10% of the reward for that block. That's how a pool works. And that's not how it used to be. There was a lot, and there's a block solved about every 10 minutes. Again, with that difficulty adjustment controlling how the blocks are, you know, how fast the blocks are solved. We'll just make the brute force you're trying to overcome harder or easier based on the amount of miners. 
and I really recommend, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna let go of the technical on this for you. I really recommend again, it's AndersBrownworth.com. There's a link in the video notes. If you want to understand that technical side, go watch his two videos on the link in the notes that's forward slash blockchain. AndersBrownworth.com forward slash blockchain. And I'll let you do that for yourself because you don't really need to completely understand this to be able to understand what Bitcoin is. What you need to understand is simple, simple. When I send a tenth of a Bitcoin, a millionth of a Bitcoin, one Satoshi, whatever I send is accounted for and it's accounted that it went from this address to this address And then once all the computers that are involved in this process sign, well, half of the computers, 51% of the computers sign off on it, that's done, that's locked into a block, and we start working on the next block. And then we start working on the next block. And then we start working on the next block. And so if somebody attacks the network and says, I want to change a block, and the most recent block was, was set up, and they go in and they start trying to change this block, they have to change it, then they have to solve it. While they're trying to change it and solve it, there's a new block up here. When they submit it, the chain rejects it. The rest of the miners reject it. They have to change it and then solve the next block before everybody else does. This was actually doable in the very beginning. People use laptops like the one that I am using for this stream to mine with in the beginning. And you could get a fair amount of Bitcoin because that halving process, that's where I was when I, I kind of side-railed myself there. Every four years, the amount of Bitcoin awarded per block gets cut in half. And what that means is back when this all started in 2008, 2009, which is when all this stuff really began, and the first block was mined, you got a shitload of Bitcoin for solving one problem. And it was something that was, compared to today, easy to do. Now, if it was a human being sitting there manually entering numbers, it would have took forever to solve a block. But with a computer doing it, even a little Pentium or something like that, it was relatively easy. Anybody could have done it. And it got harder and harder with the difficulty adjustment and with the advancement of the computers. But then every four years, the amount cuts in half. So this is what's important from an investment standpoint. You have Bitcoin right now. Every block is releasing 6.2, call it Bitcoin, plus the fees that the miners get. We are halfway to the next halving. So about two years from now, we'll experience another halving. And we know within a couple days when that's going to happen because this difficulty adjustment makes that happen. It's a known. It's a constant. It's like the speed of light in a physics equation. You can bet on Bitcoin doing what it's supposed to do. And when that happens, that means that those blocks will now pay out a reward of about 3.1 Bitcoin, which means four years after that, it'll go to about 1.6 And four years after that, it'll go to what would that be? Uh, 0.8. And then four years after that, it'll go to 0.4 Bitcoin. And you can see where the supply becomes more and more scarce on a known trajectory. And this means that when people say Bitcoin's deflationary, they're wrong. They're wrong. Bitcoin actually is a very slightly inflationary currency, but what turns it to deflationary is the more people that use it, with its scarcity, there becomes less available in circulation. So it's you're right but wrong, man, instead of the same but different, man. And this is the next thing that's important. Like, there's a lot of you guys that have followed me over the years, and you know that today I've gotten to the point where I would say I am 
99.9% of Bitcoin maximalist. I'm really not interested in any other cryptocurrencies and their projects anymore, but I won't just crap all over them, and I'll acknowledge certain things might have some uses as technologies or to fill some gaps that Bitcoin quite hasn't got to yet, like absolute privacy, 100% absolute privacy. We have great privacy tools in Bitcoin now. But we're not all the way there yet. There's no way that a Bitcoin transaction, no matter what you do with it today, can be as private as a simple Monero transaction. And we'll have an episode in the future like, is there any case for cryptos other than Bitcoin? And is there any need? There's a case and a need. They're not the same thing. But when it comes down to the scarcity issue, you have to use a word that's pretty hard for somebody to understand when you're when you're taking a creator of a thing and you're using this word to describe what they did. Discovered. So we think of like somebody discovered a star. Nobody ever looked with a telescope strong enough in the right spot before. And this fellow does, and he discovers the star. Now, he, he didn't really make the star. He didn't create the star. He discovered it. But did he really discover it? Are we sure nobody else looked at it before? And even if nobody looked at it before, maybe somebody in some other solar system with a telescope did. Who knows? Right? Maybe the Atlanteans looked at it and discovered it. But we'll say fine. We'll name that star after NT, who's here in the thing. NT 115907-Alpha-3. A new star has been discovered. But when somebody creates a thing, It's, it's not common that we'll use the word discovery. Well, society has looked for something we would call absolute scarcity in relation to money for as long as we've tried to develop a money. We need, with money, we want something that we can break up into really little parts. So if the money's really, really strong, I can still use it. We, that's called divisibility. But it would be great if we knew exactly how much gold there was. And it would be great if we could break it into these minuscule little amounts. And we can't really do either one of those. But if we could, we'd have absolute gold scarcity. The only way you can have absolute scarcity is you have to know exactly how much you have now, exactly how much you'll have a year from now, exactly when there won't be any more new stuff. And then you have to be able to use it as money. It has to be able to go down into tiny, tiny fractions. Think of it as like a penny of value. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the fraction that makes a penny will always be the same. That's absolute scarcity. And when Satoshi created Bitcoin, he discovered absolute monetary scarcity. Absolute scarcity can only be discovered once. When somebody made Litecoin, you know, I crap on a lot of crypto projects because they deserve it. Litecoin is a lot like Bitcoin. It's faster and it's cheaper and there's more of them. But it works almost identical. The same basic computer you can buy to mine Bitcoin, you can buy to mine Litecoin. Litecoin was not made by a bunch of scam artists that took half the Litecoin for themselves and then said, hey, it's like Bitcoin, but it's faster, right? But it's still not absolute scarcity. Because you've now created a, a, a copy of Bitcoin. Doesn't mean it doesn't work from a functional standpoint, but it's not the original. And unless people choose, because we talked yesterday about currency, confidence, if the confidence moves, then that becomes the new technology of choice to use as money. 
But the confidence of the market is in one place. It's been in one place since the beginning, and it hasn't moved at all. When people talk about dominance for Bitcoin, like what percent of the market cap does Bitcoin represent? And they say, well, it's only 60% now. That's 60% against everything else, and there's over like 18,000 competing currencies. And that just means dumb people chasing things with their money. So whenever you're looking at all these other projects and saying, but they do this, you know, thing and then it goes backwards and it's going to make a thing that's going to do a thing. I always say, where's the thing? If you think about it, so many of these cryptocurrencies out there that have been created, you know, we're going to be the cryptocurrency for the electrical companies. Do they need one? Why would they need one? Why can't they use Bitcoin? We'll see, man. We understand their account. So that's software. Where's your software? Well, we've got to build the token first. Well, like there's a billion tokens. Why did you need a new token? And no one ever has a good answer for this. We're going to do this thing where we let people become their own VPN companies. Where's your thing that lets people become their... No, we have the token first, man. You see what I'm saying? Bitcoin was never about that. It was here's this pristine form of money. And now that you have this pristine form of money, you go build the technology to implement it however you want. Because where we get into these discussions, we always have people, especially those that were big fans of the fork that is Bitcoin Cash, where they split the code and then they try to say, we're the real Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin network said, no, you're not. And all that 51% stayed with them. So they went off and met their own thing and they put their own name on it, right? They always say, well, what did Satoshi want? Read the white paper. I've actually read the white paper. And Before we go forward with this and what Satoshi wanted, we have to understand what a white paper is and a white paper is not. A white paper is not, 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 not a Bible gospel. It is not laying down, this is as it shall be. Or I have good news. One day there was a man born named Satoshi and he did these miracles And we must worship as miracles. A white paper is a technical document that lays out the concept for a thing to be created or built or implemented. That's what it is. And it knows, the person writing it knows when they put it down, this is an idea. This is a, this is a public brainstorming of a concept. This is what I'm trying to do. And then you, so you put the white paper out ahead of the thing. And then you build the thing. And when you start building the thing, you'll go, huh, that shit doesn't work the way we thought it would. So you make changes and alterations. And you take input from co-development when it's an open source project, which is what Bitcoin was. And so all of these arguments, should the block size be bigger so it can do more transactions? Those problems were discussed. And then they've been rediscussed over and over and over again since Satoshi went away. And when somebody tells me what Satoshi wanted, I always say if there's a thing Satoshi wanted in the Bitcoin code that's not there, he should have put it in the code before he left. And he didn't. So what he wanted is you trying to read a man's mind and we don't even know his real name. So I don't care what you think Satoshi wanted. What I know Satoshi told us he wanted because it's what he left us with is rule by consensus. The miners of Bitcoin, their purpose is really one main thing. If you have to make me say, give me a one word answer because, well, it's verification of transactions and it's, it is security. 
Because verifying a transaction is security. Lumna sent money to Aaron, and Aaron got the money. Even if I don't know Lumna and Aaron's name, I know Lumna's address and Aaron's address, and I know this amount of money went here, and it's here now. And it's here until the other side does something with it. That's security. That's security. And making sure that it's impossible for someone to go take Lumna's money without her permission or, I'm not picking on you here, her stupidity. If she gives up the information that gives access to it, then somebody can take it. That's not the network, the miners, and the node operator's job. It's not their job to keep your private key private. That's your job. Their job is as long as you do that, no one can get your shit. And those people have been charged with, since you are the ones that provide this massive security at considerable risk and expense to yourself, because you're spending a lot of money to be rewarded in Bitcoin, and if the price goes down, you have a big electric bill you still have to pay. Plus, you have this expensive hardware you invested in. You guys get to decide. When a bunch of core developers get together and they put some new stuff into the Bitcoin code, the old code doesn't go away. It's not like Microsoft. That's centralized, right? Microsoft says you need to update your computer. If you don't, if you do it, you've done it. The old goes away and the new is installed. What happens with Bitcoin when there's, that's called a soft fork. We have made a new feature set and all the miners will then choose. We're going to, we're going to adopt this. And if more than half adopt it, It becomes the new chain, and the old chain just kind of dies. It, it forks. Now, somebody could pick it up and use it, but no one will care. It will, now, it will now become some other thing, but it doesn't go away. And because it doesn't go away, they always get to decide, do we implement this upgrade, this update? Is it in the best interest of the network? And why would they not do something that's not in the best interest of the network? Because what, what will never happen is, They'll get more Bitcoin by cheating. That, that will never happen. So if I mess up Bitcoin and I'm a miner, it's bad for me. So it is by consensus of the network itself. And that's not just mining, really. That's all node operators. Because remember, the nodes are the ones that say, hey, this is, okay, I'm looking at the current block and it's resolved and I'm installing it. Boom. And then, All the nodes communicate and agree. Yep. Okay. We got it. We got a consensus. Let's build another block. Let's build another block. And that is the process. So people talk about the Constitution of the United States. You want to change the Constitution. What do you need to do? You amend it. You don't just say, I think that that part of the Constitution stupid and doesn't apply anymore. And I'll just write a new law. At least you're not supposed to. You're supposed to go through the process of amendment. And that's when people hear about Upgrades to Bitcoin and soft forks and hard forks and changes to the core code. Think of it as an amendment. And what Satoshi said was one CPU, which is one computer processor, one vote. And, of course, that's changed to more like one ASIC, one vote. But th what that does, and this is why we don't do the whole, what saves energy with proof of stake, okay? Proof of stake is where if I have a shitload of money, I get more say than you. Proof of work is whoever does the most work gets the most say. It's, it's, it's a meritocracy. And that is more than anything else what Satoshi wanted was rule by consensus because the code was set up to make anything else impossible. 
if I decide that I'm the smartest man in cryptocurrency and somehow I extort Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Michael Saylor, and five other really rich fuckers for all their money, and I say, build me the Jack Spirico cryptocurrency wall of domination, and I hire a bunch of propeller heads to do it, and I say, now I shall change what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin goes, <laughs> okay, thanks for wasting all your money, dude, bye. Doesn't even care. Doesn't even acknowledge my existence. I can't do anything. You either gain consensus or you don't. I hope that makes sense. That is the end of all finished, done. You don't gain consensus of the, the, the validating nodes and the miners to more than half. Everything stays the way that it was. You do, and it changes to take the new update in. And again, how would it benefit a miner to break the thing that everything that they're running has been built to do? And it wouldn't. And you, you have to get them all, you have to get a lot of them to agree, right? More than half. The other things that were wanted, though, was privacy, but a public record of transaction. And if you don't just read my white paper, you can actually go to Amazon and you can buy a book. I've read it. You should, too, if you want to have deeper debates on this. It's called The Complete Writings of Satoshi. And if you read that book instead of just an eight-page white paper, you'll find that privacy was discussed. And that Satoshi's on record with how privacy would happen and how it wouldn't happen. When I do a transaction with Lumna here in the chat, we don't have to know each other's names. We don't have to exchange all security numbers, driver's licenses, photos, etc. There's actually nothing that says Jack Spear goes on one side and Lumna's on the other. All there is is a number. That's it. And there's a number on the other side. And the accounting went from this number to that number and nothing more. That's actually pretty private. The issue becomes if I know that that number is connected to you, I can go forward and backward in time then from that transaction and see every number that was part before you and every number that comes after you. And I can assume if you're using that number and then, It goes to an account, and then you're using another number, and it goes, and there's a common account that everything's going down to. You probably own that one too. That's probably where you're stacking everything into a single address, which is a bad idea, right? But in the end, it is what you would call pseudonymous. You, if you are know what you're looking for, and you have some place to start, you can say this person is probably associated with this address, or this company is probably associated with this address. There's definitely addresses we know. Okay, that address is Coinbase. Or that address is Bitrix, or that address is associated with, you know, uh, whatever other exchange you have. We're able to see that. That's why if you follow something called Whale Alerts, you'll see, you know, $186 million worth of Bitcoin was just moved off Binance. That's how they know that. They know that address on the exchange is an exchange address, which is one of the reasons you don't hold your Bitcoin on exchanges because not because people know it, because that means if all your Bitcoin, all the Bitcoins on one address, it's not yours. They're saying they have it allocated to you, right? So now you're back in the, in the regular banking system. But they wanted the privacy that's inherent to Bitcoin. And within the complete writings of Satoshi, Satoshi talks about what are known as layered solutions. And that in layered solutions in time, if, if people really wanted privacy, 
that they would develop a way to use and have privacy with Bitcoin, where it would be obfuscated or encoded in some way that maybe this, this transaction disappears and coins appear over here. But they wanted the base code to be public so that it was auditable, so that you could, with very simple hardware, set up your own node and you could know 100% that the chain is the way it's supposed to be to keep the chain honest. That's what Satoshi wanted because that's what he said. And that's what he kind of, when they had to make this choice, because they certainly could have built further encryption into this to make everybody anonymous, and they chose not to do it, and then consensus was left as a mechanism. And this is why I did the episode I did yesterday, so when we had this discussion, it would make sense. Without it, you don't have triple entry accounting. You're back to everybody keeping their own books. Bitcoin was the creation of a valid method of triple entry accounting. This thing happened, and and now we can trust the system. We don't trust the bank. We don't trust the miners. We trust the math that the system operates under. I know the Bitcoin chain is where it says it is because my own computer is here, and this little bitty box literally has every transaction that ever occurred all the way back to the Genesis log. And that's what makes Bitcoin unique and anything else that actually, because there's other, like if you say, well, Litecoin does that. Yes, it does. How? It's a copy. You do that with what you will. It's a copy. And and it was very important in the, the, the creation of Bitcoin that a person, any person could run a full node with common hardware. And, There was a lot of hysteria in the early days of Bitcoin. You know how big that's going to be? It's going to be gigabytes, man. And today we have, you know, common hardware. You can run a Bitcoin node. You can put one together for a few hundred bucks. If you use used product, you can put together a Bitcoin node for under $100, really. And that was important so that anybody could participate. Not so that everybody would participate. And... That's really, I got way more technical than I planned today. But what I've realized over the years in trying to explain Bitcoin to people is when you ask the question, what is Bitcoin? If you're going to go beyond peer-to-peer digital payment system, you have to get technical. It's actually not that hard. It's not that complicated to understand, but you have to go through a lot to fully grasp it. And the last thing I want to leave you with, and the way that this, I think, can make the most sense with nothing really technical at all. For those that are on the audio, I have a little remote control on my hand. But just pretend this is a battery. This is a battery bank. And this battery bank is yours. And everybody in America, around the world, has one just like it. And we have gone to energy unit money. Right, So when you look at your cell phone, it says 99%. You have 99 energy units. But it says we're making this up, and just an analogy, it's not like a battery. There's no limit to how much energy. This is like I could have enough energy in here to that would be equivalent to a 10 megaton freaking thermonuclear bomb, but yet it would be safe. There's no limit. It's just a number. So you go to work, and you work your ass off all week long, and at the end of the week, instead of getting a paycheck – 
your employer has thing comes out of your computer and you plug your little box into it and it goes, let's say you make uh, $2,000 a week right now. You make hundred grand a year roughly. And it goes, and it puts 2,000 energy units into your little box. And you throw your box in your, your, your pocket and you go to the gas station and you go, shit, gas has gotten expensive. It's a hundred energy units to fill my car up. And then you plug your little box into the gas pump and it transmits energy into the gas pump for energy from gas. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? But just, just let it go. And then you look and let's say you were dead broke on payday. A lot of people are, right? You had zero energy units. So you had 2,000 energy units when you left work and you paid. You would expect now, because math is not that hard, you'd have 1,900 energy units, right? And this thing, you only turn it on. It's not like a cell phone that's on all the time when you're driving around. You only turn it on when you're using it. And then you go home and you go, shit, cable bills here, 100 bucks. Plug it in, you transmit 100 energy units to the cable company. This is money. But this is Bitcoin. It's thermoeconomics. That energy represents your life energy. You just did enough work that your employer said it was worth 2,000 energy units, and you're carrying it around in your little battery. Now, at the end of your week, you're about to get paid again. You look at your battery, and it says you have 500 energy units. And you say, well, shit, I need to start saving some money. So you take another box, right? And this is your saving energy unit, not your spending cash uh, energy unit. And you transfer 500 energy units over here to this box. And then you put that in a safe at home. You say, I have 500 extra energy units. And you're back to zero. But it's okay. I get paid today. You plug in at the office on Friday. You get paid 2,000 energy units back in. And this continues. And you're not a dummy. You know, and you're working really hard. So for a month... You put 500 energy units in your saving battery. So you should have, after four weeks, 2,000 energy units. A whole You saved a whole week in one month. You're a good ant. You are saving up for your future. And then so you're like, well, everybody likes to feel good about their energy units or their bank account balance. So you open it up and you look at it. And it says 1,900 energy units. What the fuck? Where did my energy go? Who stole it? Well, the battery has a leakage. It's only so efficient at storing energy. Okay? And so you're like, shit, so you mean every month when I transfer this over, I'm going to lose 100 out of 2,000 units? And the energy unit people are like, yep, that's how it works. You're like, well, screw that. I know what I'll do. I'll keep it in here. And they go, well, it doesn't really matter. You can have as many of these little boxes as you want. You can put any label you want on them. They all leak about the same. And sometimes they leak faster and sometimes they leak slower, but they're all synchronized to leak the same. That's inflation. And you go, well, shit, it's lost, I guess. It's like energy dissipated. No, energy can't be just created or destroyed. It just changed its form. We're the energy unit people. We took some from you. And you're like, well, what's my way out of this? And this was your great-grandfather. So for about a 100 years, they said, you don't have one. You don't have one. There is no way out. 
I don't care. All the energy units are all synchronized. They all have a dollar sign and an eagle, right? And the American seal, that's not an eagle on the seal on the, on the, on, on there anyway. It's a vulture, right? It's a vulture, the IRS vulture that comes to get you and the, the, the inflation vulture. They're all the same and there's not shit you can do. If somebody came along and said, Hey, check this little fancy guy out, little USB stick. It plugs into the same system. And if you put your energy in here, there's times where it'll look like it's less and there's times where it'll look like it's more, but over time you'll lose no energy. In fact, it will actually make more energy value for you. If nothing else, it will preserve the sacrifice of your life energy you made. This is now available. You have to get one, but everybody else's is about this big and looks white, and this is a little bitty one, and it looks black. And since it's black, there's people who say you bat, you're bad because you have one. You're not participating in the system with everybody else in this matrix. You must be out buying drugs or, or you know prostitutes with it or something. You're not. You're just like, hey, man, I want to store my energy in a more efficient manner. I don't want it to bleed over time. I want, if, if today... When I go out and I expend X amount of effort and I can get Y amount of stuff five years from now, I still want to be able to get at least Y amount of stuff for it. That's what Bitcoin is. That's what it was built to be. That's why it runs on energy because you can't just make more energy. Proof of work, you can change anything. I mean, I'm sorry, proof of stake. You can change anything. If you want proof of stake, it's called the banking system. That's how the entire monetary, existing monetary system ex it runs. There's no demand to prove that you created value when you created a new dollar. That's why I told you first, before we ever really talked about Bitcoin in this series, what's, what is the existing monetary system like? How does it work? I create nothing out of something out of nothing. I just decided I would do this thing. And, and that's what people think Bitcoin is. And that's where I want to end this one with. When you talk to the uninformed about Bitcoin, they always say it's vaporware. It was just created out of nothing. And then the, the immediate response, the snapback that people who have become believers in Bitcoin have is, well, then what's the dollar? It doesn't work with those people. Don't bring that as a snapback. The, the, the answer to that is, well, you're wrong. And if you would like to hear how, I will explain to you how you're wrong. And you can give the long explanation I gave you that took about an hour today, or you can simply explain that all those computers that run, that create new Bitcoin, expend a tremendous amount of energy to make sure that Bitcoin can't be counterfeited or stolen or misallocated. That we know exactly what we're dealing with at all times in a system of accounting with the best security humans have ever created and the best ability to store your energy forward in time. That's what Bitcoin is. It is a system of accounting that moves value easily across SACE, which gold doesn't, and preserves value across time, which fiat currency doesn't. Gold is great at long-term storage of value. I don't disagree with Peter Schiff on that. I said yesterday... I have precious metal in my own holdings. 
And I'm not going to get rid of all of it and go all in on Bitcoin with even my precious metal allocation. It's small relative to my wealth, but I have it. It does hold value across time. I don't believe that it has the potential for gain that Bitcoin did. And it's, it's very history that makes it that way, that makes it so. In that how long have we been using gold and silver? About 5,000 years. It's a mature asset class. I'll give it that. So its potential upside is extremely limited. It's long-term store of value extremely well proven. But what if you could go back and acquire gold while people were going, gold? What are you talking about? We use seashells for money. Or we use grain bills for money. You gotta be an idiot to think that that yellow metals, see that would be the time you would want to get in on the gold game. Right before mass adoption. Of course, mass adoption at that time was something that took 500 years to occur. It would have to go through multi-generations. We didn't move quite as quickly. We didn't have the technology that we do today. So gold solves the problem of holding value across time. And it might do really well over a decade. It might do really poorly over a decade. It's done really poorly over the last decade. It really has relative to other asset classes. But over the last century, it's done a phenomenal job at holding value. Except that every time that you move it, the battery leaks because it's expensive to move. It's very expensive to move. Move a million dollars worth of gold and see how much it costs you to do it, let alone a billion or $40 billion worth of gold. We need men with guns to move a billion dollars worth of gold. And what if we want to move it from here to Europe? Well, we have all kinds of regulatory shit we have. to. We have an airplane, right? So when we move it across space, we go back into the problem of draining down the value of the energy stored. We have to break some of the gold off to pay for the movement. We can move a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin for the same price as a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, for the same price as about a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. And again, the naysayers will say, so when you're moving a dollar's worth of Bitcoin, it costs more to move it than it does, you know, in the value of the Bitcoin itself. That's why we have lightning. We'll get to that in the fourth in the series. But that's what it is. That, that's what it is. And, and somebody's saying there's, there's a few good YouTube videos. Again, I really want to recommend to go just watch. This was the, and I understood this. But I really understood it when I watched the two videos that are at Anders Brown Worth, not Brown's Worth, Anders Brown Worth, all one word, dot com forward slash blockchain. That is in the video links right down there below. It's right below uh, demoblockchain.org hash. It's the one right after that. And go watch those two videos and you'll understand the tech. But just just understand it as that. It's a way to store value across time but to move it easily across space and to do business from one individual to another. I think that'll wrap things up today. I don't see any questions coming in on this one. I, I'm sorry I probably made this more technical than I should. As I start bringing guests on, uh, if somebody knows somebody that would answer this question a little bit more uh, less technical, that is a good speaker, uh, they might make a good guest for uh, in the future. And I, I want your input on what you're looking for out of the Bitcoin breakout. I, I built the survival podcast completely out of what 
completely out of what the audience said they wanted over the 14 years that I've been doing it. And I plan on uh, this being a production of doing the same thing with this breakout, right? Pun intended again, uh, from TSP and giving you what you want. Again, just to look forward and it will not be tomorrow. I am rolling out 0600 tomorrow. We're heading to Tennessee and I'm on vacation for real. Uh, not just like I said I was. I'm on vacation for real with my wife until I get back on the 20th. Uh, so there won't probably be any Bitcoin breakouts until then. And it will be the 29th. It will be both a TSP episode and a Bitcoin breakout episode that we will have our first guest interview for Bitcoin breakout. Again, that's going to be Natalie Brunell. And we'll be talking to her about what made her leave mainstream media and dedicate her life to teaching people about Bitcoin and interviewing people about Bitcoin and telling the story of Bitcoin. With that, guys, I'll catch you later. Thanks for tuning in today. This has been another episode of The Bitcoin Breakout. To subscribe and learn more, please visit thebitcoinbreakout.com.